I left off essentially with verse 17 of chapter 3 uh, last time. <clears throat> uh, he had implored us in verse 16 to lay down our lives for the brethren. We took some time there discussing being living sacrifices and sacrificing our time, our energy, whether it be in physical works or in spiritual uh, prayer and help uh, for others. There are many, many ways we can lay down our life, which is our time. Time is life and life is time, essentially. Uh, we talk about how our time might be up. Well, our, we're speaking of our life. It's one and the same. How do we use our time? Verse 17, But whoso has this world's good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? Now, there's an interesting parallel to that uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to go back there for a minute and pick that up. Because just being generous is not the entire answer to this situation. John is talking about generosity here and those who have being willing to give to those who have not or have not as much. But notice here in 1 Corinthians 13, called the love chapter, because that's what Paul talks about all the way through. And we're all quite familiar with it. We sing it in our hymn and so on. But I think it's good to consider some of it here uh, since we are talking about the subject of love. God's love, not just human emotion. Though I speak with different languages of men and even the language that the angels might speak and don't have love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It's just a noise that means nothing. Uh, so you might have incredible abilities, but if they don't, are, are not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, senior moment, I guess, if they're not encompassed about or uh, the parameters are not those of the love of God, then it means nothing. You know, demons can speak all the languages of men, they can speak the language of angels. Are we aware of that? Uh, people who are demon-possessed, it doesn't matter whether they're Indian or Chinese or American or German or Filipino, uh, they, the demons can speak through them when they're in control of their minds in the language of that person. So, that alone means nothing unless the love of is involved in it. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he lumps a great deal together here, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and don't have love, I am nothing. So we might have all kinds of knowledge about a lot of things. We might understand prophecy and I think to some degree here we understand it better than most, uh, having delved into it more. Uh, if we don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Because it is love, the love of God, that is going to see us through into his kingdom. He loves all mankind and he has made it his purpose that all mankind be saved. And he's going to come close to us to accomplishing that because he will not be a failure. And he has a plan to see that it works. 
But verse 3 is what <clears throat> led me here. <clears throat> and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and don't have love, it profits me nothing. So, on the one hand, John is saying that we need to have the attitude of caring for and giving to others. But even that can be done in selfishness or in self-righteousness. Some kind of self-centeredness so that we can look upon ourselves as being good or feel good about ourselves. So, is it an outgoing concern truly for others that we give, or is it sometimes that we want to appear righteous, even though we may not be righteous in other aspects or respects of our life? Now, the Pharisees fit that mold pretty well. They were willing to give, they were willing to donate, they were charitable in that sense, But they did not have the love of God. They had love of self. They had love of adulation and adoration of the people. But they did not have the love of God. We'll see that defined better a little more as we go along today. So that we might better grasp and understand the difference between self-love, human affection for others, which... Virtually everyone has, to one degree or another, over a very few or a broader spectrum of humanity, depending on how social they happen to be in terms of personality. So I want to let us understand that there is more to it than just giving. It is a very important element of the love of God because He gives Everything Rain on the just and the unjust. He sent His Son to the world, not to the righteous, but to save the unrighteous. So His love goes way beyond uh, the things that we might sometimes think about. <clears throat> Some other elements of love, and this helps define it. Love suffers long, is willing to suffer. Human beings, by nature, do not like to suffer. We do not like to suffer physical pain, emotional pain. We do not like to suffer the pain in the neck that other people can sometimes be to us. We do not like to suffer poverty or drought or doing without. It is human to want our wants, our needs, our desires fulfilled. But sometimes we have to suffer long, and this is in the context, really, of dealing with others. Now, even with God, we have to learn to suffer long, do we not? Not that there's anything wrong with Him, but He says that those who endure to the end will be saved. Not those that give up halfway there, or three-quarters, or ninety-nine one-hundredths of the way there, but those who endure to the very end of all this that is happening. And we're getting very near the end of it. And yet he says right at the end there in Matthew 24, where I'm quoting from, that right at the end there will be many who give up. 
Many who quit, many whose love waxes cold, and for one reason or another, give it all up. So he instructs us there in that context of what will be happening at the end, a great falling away, as described by Paul in Thessalonians, as a time to be very vigilant that we not let anything separate us from God. And many, many elements in this world can cause us to drift, to be complacent or lackadaisical, or to want to go some other direction. But we must become God-centered. Everything we live, say, think, do, and breathe needs to have God at the center of it so that we worship Him with our whole heart. Not half-heartedly, not sitting on the fence, but working hard at serving Him and worshiping Him and serving His people as best we possibly can. Now, we all fall short of it, and that's why Paul wrote this chapter, uh, to be sure that we are willing to suffer for a long time with whatever burdens it is that we bear. We suffer with others, though, is a great deal of the context here, and is kind, because that is outgoing and has to do with other people. So suffering along with people and being kind uh, is a great deal of the emotional and mental, spiritual makeup that we need to be developing. Not to be short-tempered, not to be agitated, not to be impatient, but long-suffering. And not to envy. <clears throat> the love of God does not have envy involved. And yet human beings are full of envy. Uh, we envy physical things. We env in, uh, envy uh, intellect. We envy spirituality. We envy looks. We, you know, on and on the story can go about the feelings that we might have toward others. If we're shy and backward Maybe their personality we might envy. And envy creates negativity and ill feelings toward others. And we're not to have those. Love doesn't vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. In other words, there's no room for pride. There's no room for ego, for self-centeredness. That's why he says to esteem others better than ourselves. In fact, God says he hates pride. There is no form of pride that is justifiable before God. What are we to be proud of? Texas? You know, I didn't create it. I was born there, but that doesn't make any better than anywhere else. <laughs> There's lots of places I like better than Texas. Just because I was born there doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, it was just a hot, dry desert. was pretty well personality this where I came from. <clears throat> I couldn't wait to get out of there and get to someplace prettier. So why should I have pride in that? It's a place that hopefully someday will bloom as a rose. Then it might be a good place to be. But we don't need to be proud that we're from Connecticut or anywhere else. Or the United States. A lot is said about pride in America. What does that have to do with you and me? God made this continent. 
God allowed us to be here. He gave it the blessings it has. It has nothing to do with us, so we need to give honor and glory to God in heaven, not pride in being an American. We might be thankful of where we are and who we are and where we live. <clears throat> we can be thankful for a lot of things, <clears throat> but we have nothing to be proud of. People take a lot of pride sometimes in their children. Wrong attitude, wrong approach. What do you have proud to be proud of with children? God is the one who created the way upon which children are born on this earth. He's the one that created human beings and made the whole process. And all you did was went through some physical and emotional things to produce children. Well, we give glory and honor to God for the circumstance, for the system, and for the children that are produced. But there's nothing there for us to be proud of. We thankful for them. We can be well pleased with them as the Father was with the Son. But when he says he hates pride, he means it. I try never to use the word proud because I'm, I've tried to exorcise that from my thinking. Now that doesn't mean that we can't swell up in pride at times whether we say it or not. But it is our pride and our ego that gets in the way of our relationships. And that's why he mentions that here in 1 Corinthians 13. Because when we're proud, egotistical, self-centered, and trying to please self, <clears throat> then we become vaunted and puffed up. And that gets in the way of relationships. Generally, what causes our re negative reactions to others is our own pride, vanity, and ego gets in our way. If we were truly meek and truly humble, we would rarely get angry. We would rarely get upset at others because our mental attitude would be that they are just as worthy of the kingdom of God as we and that we should esteem them better than ourselves. That is Scripture. You treat them and think of them and love them as you love yourself, but you have to esteem them as Christian if they're following the precepts of Christ. I'm talking about our brethren here for the most part. Does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, and thinks no evil. We might as well just quit right now, today. We've already heard enough to keep us busy all week and all month and all year and for the rest of our lives. If we could just live up to what we've read here in these first five verses, it's to come to have that kind of outlook. Not easily provoked and thinks no evil. How easy is it for us to fly off the handle? How easy to get upset or angry or frustrated with others, to be provoked? It's just so natural. It comes so easy to be offended to one degree or another. 
we are told by Christ that we are not to take offense at anything. No matter how badly someone treats us, brethren, we have no justification to become offended. Do we realize that? Now take Christ as the example, and he is our example. They cursed him in every possible, imaginable way. They did everything physically to him that can be done short of death before they ultimately killed him. And just before he died, he said, Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. He did not get provoked. He did not get angry. He did not get bitter. He did not become impatient. He did not answer back. He was silent as a lamb, Isaiah 53. Answered not at all. He is the ultimate example of what Paul is talking about here. Do any of us ever get offended that would include us all, would it not? So we have to work on this. Now you can have the love of mankind for mankind, what they call or what the Greek word philios was. And that's natural. But even human beings who love each other in symbiotic relationships, fathers and mothers and children together, with the greatest of human love, still get offended and have family arguments and fights and silent treatments and all the things that human beings do to each other. But when we're talking about the kind of love that we are to come to have through the Spirit of God, then we will become like them and not be offended at personal abuse aimed at us. Now, God does get angry. He is very slow to anger and to wrath. And His anger lasts for only a moment. But His anger is at sin. His anger is at those who disobey and do not follow His ways. So, when He gets angry... Ultimately, he does something about it. Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the Great Tribulation, the seven last plagues, uh, sometimes lesser things uh, which have happened throughout history where God has expressed his anger. Sometimes in the death of a few people because of rebellion or whatever. But that is a righteous anger that is against sin, but not against individuals, per se, as his created beings. He always loves his children, all of them, unconditionally. But he does not like what they do, you see. So we cannot hate anyone and have the love of God. We can be angry righteously, but we have to be very, very careful about that, are we truly anger, angry at sin, 
Or are we angry at a person because what they may or may not have done to us that we perceive that way? That we have to be very, very careful about and not take offense at things that are done toward us or said about us. A lot was said about Christ, and he took it without rancor or anger. So we have some growing to do. But now we're talking about the true love of God. And that's what it takes to come to the position that Paul is talking about here. It takes time, it takes work. We all fall short of it to this day, and we have work to do. That should not be discouraging. We just need to understand the goal and the purpose and the bar and how high it is that we're shooting for. And the better we understand that, maybe the closer to the mark we'll get. Even in sports, if you don't know what the record is, you don't know what the mark is, and you don't know what you're striving for. But if so-and-so ran the mile in 3.58 seconds, then you know what the goal is if you are to surpass that. So we need to understand the mark that we're shooting for, the mark of the high calling of Christ, and then work toward that. And rejoices not in iniquity. Sometimes it's very easy to see the iniquity or sin in others and maybe use that as a measure, measuring bar against ourselves because if they did this, 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 and that, then they're worse than I am. And that is not an attitude that we can be in if we are to esteem them higher than ourselves. But rejoices in the truth, the truth of God. Now, I've heard it said over the years by various ones, well, I'm telling the truth. This is the truth about that person. And yet it is based on perhaps sin and offense. It is based on iniquity. That's not the kind of truth he's talking about here. Yes, a sin that somebody committed might be true. But he tells us not to rejoice in evil. And sin is evil. So to repeat other sins is not in the spirit of what is being said here. Now you can say, you can justify putting people down, stabbing them in the back by saying this is the truth about them. That is a perversion, a skewing of the scriptures to use it in that form and fashion. When he says... Here to rejoice in the truth. It is the truth of God, or with the truth, as my margin says. Bears all things, believes all things, all things, and endures all things. Now, when it says believes all things, does that mean we're supposed to be lie, believe lies? No, that's not the force of what Paul is saying here. In other words, we have a positive attitude toward all things. We're able to withstand whatever might come up. Uh, we hope 
through all things or all circumstances, everything that might happen. And whatever happens, we endure through it. So believes uh, might have synonyms that get the message across to us a little better. Uh, obviously, you don't believe all things strictly in terms of somebody tells you the moon is green cheese. You don't believe that. I mean, there's obviously something that isn't true. So if you're going to say you... Uh, as, as I was talking about above, uh, what, where is it here? Think of, no, not thinks all evil, but rejoices in the truth, see? You can say, well, this is true. But is that what Paul is talking about? And when he says, believes all things, does that mean that you believe any and everything you hear? No. But you are of a mind to believe truth. You're a mind to believe what is right. You are not those who is a skeptic in denying and neg negative, but we prove all things and hold fast that which is good. So once you prove things, you believe them and you act on them. You live that way. So what he's talking about here is a positive mental outlook that we are to come to have. God has that. Through all the things that have transpired since Adam and Eve were created. From the sin in the garden to the violence that was on the earth before Noah's flood, or God's flood, we call it Noah's flood, but it was in the days of Noah. Where God loathed what man had become, yet for one righteous man, he decided to save mankind. And he also has a plan and a purpose whereby all those people who lived will come to understand his plan and his purpose someday and have an opportunity at salvation that they never had. The new covenant will be offered to them. So God has always loved his creation. And no matter how badly he's, it's gotten... He still does. Now, we are in the days that are becoming much as it was in the days of Noah, with murder and violence and people killing each other just because they want to. No reason, no motive particularly. guy murdered his wife the other day and posted it on Facebook. Where does stuff like that come from? Murdering people just because they're there. I've seen that in Africa, South Africa. Now it's happening here. Violence is spreading throughout the earth, not only of war, but of people upon people. And all kinds of weird perversions that we won't get into. But through all this, we are to keep a positive attitude, knowing God is going to see it through and that all Israel will be saved, as Romans 11:26 tells us. In other words, despite the sin and degradation that we see in our own nation today, God has a plan to pull us out of it. Now, He's not going to save us as we are. 
He is going to put us through tribulation and plagues and decimation of population, population, and that requires then a resurrection at the end of the thousand years, as Revelation 20 tells us. So that those people might then be taught the truth and imbued with the Spirit of God so that they might straighten up, repent, and someday qualify for God's kingdom. Romans 11:26 requires a scenario of that type because they certainly aren't saved for the kingdom of God, if you look at the populace today. And even those who think they're saved aren't, because they don't even know what they're being saved from or what, it, what salvation means. But they'll learn someday. So we're to look forward with a positive outlook toward God and His plan and His purpose and what is going to happen and even the people we see around us that it's easy to look down upon because they're going just the opposite of God's way, we're not to have that view of them. We're to see them as the children of God who will be saved someday and meantime treat them with dignity and with love as best we can in spite of the sins that they permit in their lives. Verse 8, love never fails. The love of God will never fail. It will always be there. And as we come to have more of the love of God, we will not fail either. We will live up to and accomplish the things that God has called us to do. And we need to be moving forward in that daily. We all lack a great deal. I do, you do, every one of us does. But it's something to work on. As far as prophecies, they'll be fulfilled. Fail is not a proper word there, but they'll be fulfilled. Whether there be tongues, they'll cease. There'll not be more. There'll not be languages. There's only going to be one language in the millennium, the world tomorrow. So, if you're proud of speaking Swahili or German or or Chinese or whatever, uh, that's going away. Won't be there anymore. Well, these things are going to change. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. It vanishes away when you die. The dead know nothing. And a lot of the knowledge that we have today in our world, technological such as it is, much of it will go away. A lot of the things that are encyclopedias and dictionaries and culture are involved in will not be in the world tomorrow. Why would you need knowledge of being a locksmith? There'll be no locks. No one will steal. No one will break in. Won't need that. There's all kinds of knowledge that we won't need anymore. It'll just be gone. Forget it. Things that people go to college to learn all about will not be necessary anymore. But there is something that will survive. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, we don't know it all by any means. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Then we will understand fully. When I was as a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
People use that to explain that Paul had to have been married and had to put the kids' toys away. But uh, not what he's talking about at all. But he's comparing what we might learn as humans here to what we'll know then. We know in part. We don't get it all. He says, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. The mystery of God will be cleared up. Now, we understand in our heads, having perhaps read Mystery of the Ages that Herbert Armstrong wrote and compared that with the Scriptures, and we understand that we were created on this earth able to be destroyed, but with the great goal and purpose of becoming like God and seeing Him as He is and becoming God as the Bride of Christ. Kind begets kind. So we can maybe understand that intellectually, but until that resurrection, there's no way we're going to get it. We, we cannot come to grasp the vast difference between God and us. But then shall I know, even as also I am known. In other words, he would come to know God as well as God knows him. Now, God reads our thoughts. He ponders our hearts. He watches what we will do. He knows our motives. He knows our feelings. We deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive him. Now, he says that we will come to know him in the same way that he already knows us. We will be able to read his mind, know his emotions, know his feelings, know his direction, his purpose. We will read him as well as he reads us. I cannot imagine that. We wonder... Do we not? What God's will is about this, about that? Would this please God? Would this not please God? Is this right? Is this wrong? Does this fit Scripture? What does this Scripture mean anyway? I don't understand that verse. Then we will know perfectly, clearly, everything in the mind and the world and the universe of God. Know Him as He knows us. Now, we look through a glass darkly today. We can see a glimmer. We can see from the Scriptures what is there and what our purpose is, but understanding the reality of it is way beyond us. And then as a summary, and now abides faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So Christianity is based upon those three things in the majority. Now, there are other factors that go into those three, but those are the key elements of being like God, is to, at least for the time being, have faith that there is a God, faith that His Word is the truth, and that if we live by that Word, we will someday be God. So we trust His Word. 
There are those who say the Bible is just full of errors or the Catholics uh, ruined it all and changed it around so much that it doesn't have anything to do with human life today. Joseph Smith said that his scriptures, he calls them, his writings were far above the Word of God. I even saw a quote where he said, I'm not sure he said it, but it was quoted as having come from him, that not Jesus, nor Peter, or John, or Paul, or any of those could keep a church together, but he had. I don't suppose there's any vanity, pride, or ego involved in a statement like that, if indeed that's what he said. But he placed himself above all those. We need faith in the Word of God. How can we worship a God who would not have left us a record that is viable that makes sense, that expresses Him in words, how could we live without a guide, without an instruction book, without a warranty book, without the Bible, man is rudderless, he is drifting, he has nothing to go by except his own imagination. And have you ever seen the imaginations of man and what they lead to? Have you even experienced some of your own imaginations and where they could lead if you let them? Being human. No, God left us His Word, the Bible. I'm not going to say that there are not some mistranslations, that there are not a few things that have been interjected, such as one we'll see in 1 John 5, 7. It wasn't in the original text. But we do have the older text, the Textus Receptus, available in the original Hebrew and Greek. And the best text available uh, can be checked against what has been translated and brought to us today. And the King James Version is by far and above the best translation that has ever been produced. The modern ones, many of them are paraphrases, if you will. The Living Bible, the New International, they're not worth the paper they're printed on. They don't have much use. Now, once in a while, the Living Bible might use a lot of extra uh, synonyms, but you can use Roger's Thetharis to get those without having to imbibe a lot of Protestant theology, which is what that they call it a translation, that paraphrase is. Yeah, it may make things something simpler to you and make sense to you, but by and large, this is the best translation that has ever been produced in a mass way from the original text. And even it has some errors in translation and so on. But those can be figured out. A lot of people think it's full of contradictions, but the reason they think that is because they don't understand all the Scriptures and haven't put them all together. This is a reliable word. 
And it doesn't matter. And I think we've seen it right here. We can go from Genesis to Revelation, back and forth and forth and back, and compare scriptures at one end of this book to the other, and they all say the same thing. You keep turning up with the same analysis, the same answers, whether it's Deuteronomy or Thessalonians. It doesn't matter where you go. You'll find the same thing throughout this book. And we need to have faith that there is a God who created us, and we know Him by the things around us that we can see that have been made. He tells us that in Romans 1. And then we see His Word, which explains how we are to operate within this world that He has made and among and between ourselves. And faith that if we do His will and His purpose and please Him, He will make us part of His kingdom forever. So that is a rock-solid major piece of being a Christian today, is to have that kind of faith. Not to be shaken. And hope has its roots in faith. Hope also has its roots in obedience. Hope has its roots in a lot of things positive. Because if we serve God and obey Him and do the things He says, it gives us hope for our future. And without hope, it's hard to move forward. It's easy to get discouraged and frustrated by the things we see around us, by the time that everything is taking. But He told us it would be like this, didn't He? He said, we're going to be falling away. There's going to be people coming to hate one another. There are people who are going to begin to lose it and lose what we're talking about today is the attitude of love and patience and concern and gentleness with each other. Because of sin, the, the love of many will wax cold. And the love of God will not then dwell in them. And they can't get along. Now, God has said He's driven the church apart. That he has placed this confusion in us. And he said he set every man against his neighbor. I read that in the Old Testament this morning. Boy, is it ever true in the church. That cannot be reconciled until Christ begins to dwell with us in Zion and Jerusalem and brings peace among the remnant. It will not happen till then. Now, we need to be striving to live at peace with one another and working toward it and trying to get along. But really, a unified church is not possible until that happens. Read Haggai, read Zechariah 1, 2, 3, and 4, and that's when it happens. 9 and 10 of Zechariah uh, also speak of that, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then love. Because there will be a time when you won't really need faith, will you? Because you'll be God. You'll be part of His kingdom. You won't need hope because your hopes will have been fulfilled. But love must exist throughout all eternity among all the people of God and all those who have been transformed into spirit. That is the ultimate goal. There was that kind of peace in the universe until Satan began to have pride in his intellect, his looks, whatever it was that first began to turn him into looking at himself instead of those around him 
and God himself and began to cause him to be vaunted and puffed up and the love of God began to depart from him. And the love of self took over and then he betrayed and ruined and wrecked those around him, a third of the angels. Now they were righteous angels of God and yet one bad apple spoiled that whole bunch, that whole one-third of the angels because of his influence. God does not want that anymore. That's why he put us here as humans that can easily sin, who are prone to it, who delight in it, who so easily are beset by it. So that we might learn the penalties. So that we might learn the frustration and the misery that not treating one another in kindness and gentleness and love can create. So that we would come to hate the way of human nature and the way of Satan, which is all about us. You have to almost be immersed in it, imbibe of it, dwell through it, live through it, in order to grasp what it causes. The way of man and Satan affects families, it affects businesses, it affects nations, it affects everyone on this earth. And we see the misery and the violence and the hate and the racism and the poverty and the disease and all the things that are wrong and evil and terrible in this world as a result of greed, selfishness, and putting oneself ahead. We have people who are wrecking and ruining our whole world, polluting it in so many, many ways, simply because they want to be wealthy rich and in control. They're destroying what God made and destroying us with it through cancer, heart disease, diabetes, MS, you name it. They're killing us and Satan is delighted. So God put us here to have to be human for a time so that maybe we would learn the lesson. That Satan's way, indeed, is wrong. And the human way is wrong. And then we will depart from it. And we'll never want to go back to it. Then he will change us. He does not want any more rebels. He does not want any more dissenters. He wants no one with a negative attitude. No one with anger, patience, issues. He wants people who love from the heart with all their heart, mind, body, soul. And that's why Paul wrote this chapter. Everything comes down to having the love of God for everything left living. And those who will not accept that will go into the lake of fire and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they are going to see what they missed and be very chagrined over it. 
There will not be much weeping and wailing because God is a God who will be, who will be a success and He has said so. And when He binds Satan for a thousand years, peace is going to reside on the earth almost overnight. Because those negative impulses that come from Satan, those prince of the power of the air, will be gone. And peace will come for the whole world. Have a thousand years of peace. And then Satan is going to be loosed for a short season and there will be a great rebellion against God right at the end of the thousand years. That's how much influence Satan has. Now we can put Adam and Eve, Judas, down if we want to. But look how quickly he will affect the whole world. And he affects us more than we even begin to imagine. So when all is said and done, it is the love for everyone that survives that is part of the kingdom of God so that God can have unanimity, peace, happiness, and joy throughout the rest of time. Forever. We say rest of time because we don't understand forever. We can't grasp that God has always existed, nor can we ex grasp what forever is. But we can believe it and have faith and hope in it. And if we can learn to live together in love, we can share it. Well, I was going to move on through First uh, John 3, but we got sidetracked there in First Corinthians 13, and that's probably a good thing. So let's go back here and spend a few minutes uh, in First John 3. Now, where was I here? Um, laying down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need, that's where I left off and went back there because... We can see there in comparing these two verses, they're not contradicting one another. We must be willing to give and share and serve, but we must do it with the right attitude, not for any selfish motive or purpose. And that's why Christ said there in the Sermon on the Mount, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. In other words, don't let them be impressed with one another. Just do, just help, just serve, just give, wherever you can find a need, and then don't pat yourself on your back or tell your right hand how good it is or your left. In other words, we're to do it without vanity, without ego. Then, it is not only helping someone, it is helping with the right motive. And motive is so very, very important to God. So he tells us here to give, and Paul explains more about the motive there. Now, John doesn't leave that out, as we'll see, but uh, those two scriptures don't contradict at all. Whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So, you can give... And you can give with the right motive, and that is far superior to giving with the wrong motive. But also in 
truth. What we give, what we do, always has the truth of God as the underlying factor. We live in truth. The truth shall set you free. So the burdens, the problems, the difficulties in life can go away because of the truth. It's what sets us free from many of the concerns of this world and helps us be concerned for the right things. So be sure that whatever we say or whatever deed we might do is based on the truth with true motives and God's way of living underscoring it. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. If we're acting according to this instruction while obeying the truth, then we are of, in, and living by the truth and will assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Our human heart can condemn us of sins, of wrong attitudes, past, present, and possibly in the future. But God is big enough to look beyond the sins that we have committed, beyond the shortcomings, lacks, and faults that we still have. Remember, he said there in Matthew 24, when it comes time to be protected from everything coming down in this world, to pray that you be accounted worthy to escape. It doesn't mean that any of us truly are going to be worthy. How many could say, I've been good, I've done no wrong. You've got to protect me. Now, there's some pride, ego, and vanity if we ever have that attitude. No, we have to look at ourselves and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and please account me worthy in spite of my unworthiness. And we will be in that condition from now on. But He has that capacity... He has enough love for us that He's willing to overlook our warts, our faults, our problems, our deficiencies. If we have a right attitude and are working toward being what we should be in truth. Beloved, if our heart condemn us, then have we, condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now there's where faith comes in. What right do we have not to cause our heart to condemn us? The blood of Christ. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, every one of us, time and again, and still do. But His sacrifice is a continual sacrifice, and we can call on Him day or night to forgive us and have mercy on us because we have failed yet again. And we can have confidence because of their desire and capability to forgive 
and to remove the penalty of sin through he who died for sin. So, we move forward in spite of our mistakes and sins and continue to overcome. He didn't say we'd be perfect, but he said to all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my kingdom. So that presupposes that we will be short of perfect and that we have need of overcoming. So we just accept, I'm far from perfect, what am I going to do about it? We don't give up and say, well, I've tried, I can't overcome. You don't try, you do it. When somebody tells me I'll try to get that done, I about 50% think, yeah, it probably won't happen. When somebody says, I'm committed, I'm going to do that, then I feel fairly secure that it'll probably happen. He wants a level of commitment toward overcoming. I will. I will set my heart. I will set my mind. I will overcome. I will change some things. That's the first step toward actually getting it done, is a commitment to it. And if we are overcoming, then our heart will condemn us less, because it will give us more hope. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him. You want to know how to receive what you want from God. Now there is a major question, a major thing that needs to be addressed. A lot of people on earth would like to please God. There are a lot of people who say that they love God. There are a lot of people who think they have a relationship with God. But do they? Is it a figment of their own imagination and what has been planted there by different religions? Or is it true? We have a defining scripture we just touched upon. I haven't read it all yet. But if you want God to answer your prayers, your deepest longings, your hopes, your dreams, if you want Him to answer your prayers, there's something you must do. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. Why? How? Because, as a direct result of, we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. The commands of God are inviolable. They are not done away. They are still in effect. They define our relationship with God and man. The commandments are done away with is probably the greatest teaching and deception of Satan. 
If he can convince mankind that we don't have to follow God's directives, his commands, his ordinances, his statutes, his laws, his every thought, if he can convince us of that, we will not be in the kingdom of God. It's that simple. He will not answer our prayers if we don't keep his commandments. He says he hears not the prayers of sinners. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4. Sin is a transgression of the law. Or 5, 3. What? 3, 4, isn't it? Yeah, sin is a transgression of the law. So if we don't keep the law, that means we're sinners. Because the law defines what sin is. And he says that he will answer us only if we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's a verse that you should have memorized. 1 John 3.22 If you want to hear from God, you want his answers, you want what you ask of him, you ask according to his commandments and toward your obedience. God hears those who have faith. Well, if we're obeying God's laws, then we have more faith, more trust, and more hope. And that's what Christ explained to the disciples in John 15 through 17. And John carefully recorded all that. That we ask, he will do what we ask if we ask according to his will. And his will is expressed right here in this book. Many, many different ways is it explained so that we don't miss the point. So if we want to please him, we have to ask according to his will. And his will is that we keep his commandments. And if we do that, then he says he will answer us. And we're in a position in the church today where we were not worshiping him and seeking his will with all our heart. In other words, Laodicean, apathetic, ho-hum, taking it for granted. And this whole exercise in separation and division and hatred and animosity was put upon us by God. Read the book of Lamentations, you don't believe it. Zion and Jerusalem are described there, and God says over and over, I did this to you. And it's all through the Bible that he would do this so that we might learn. And it's been a tough time these last 25, 26 years, hasn't it? Very confusing, frustrating, difficult. And the simple answer is obey Him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and turn to Him with our whole heart, as expressed in our love toward the brethren, and He will hear us, and He will answer us. How far do we have to go? How much do we lack before we turn that much? I don't know. But He has not lifted it yet. So we must still have some work to do. So think about that as you go through this week.